many reactions. And one of them might be excitement. You know, oh, yeah, you know, prayer is important and, and you're excited to learn more about prayer and to focus in on prayer. Um, one of them might be the opposite reaction of dread. You may have both. I don't know. But it could be that you uh, don't, don't like focusing on prayer because it makes you feel guilty. You know, who – I don't think there's ever been a Christian who's ever lived that has not felt guilty that their prayer life isn't what it should be. And in fact, many books on prayer, uh, the authors start out with kind of a, a qualification or a misnomer that uh, just because I'm writing this book on prayer, I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm with you learning and growing and on this journey. And so I am by no means a good prayer. Um, it's an area that I need to grow in. And so I don't stand up here saying I have all this knowledge. I'm up here saying this is an area I need to grow in. And I'm inviting you to grow with me in, my, in, your, in your own prayer life as I, as I seek to grow in mine. So hopefully um, this series on prayer doesn't lead to, to guilt. That's, that's not my goal. My goal is to not make you feel guilty uh, over, over your prayer life. Rather, my aim in this series is to help us grow. So I want to encourage you through this series and spur you on to more prayer in general, but also more biblical prayer in specific. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as the weeks go by. So I have a couple of thoughts to get us started but first, I'm gonna I'm gonna credit um, this. This is a really small book on prayer. It's by a guy named John, and I can't pronounce his last name. So it's O N W U C H E K W A. I don't know how you pronounce that. But um, it's a really good little book about prayer and about prayer in the life of the church. And um, and so if if you want to look at it, you can come up and, and look at it after afterwards. But I have three thoughts on prayer to introduce introduce us this morning. First is Jesus in his ministry was a man of compassion, a man of grace, a man of truth. And the only time he ever got really upset is whenever he was dealing with the religious leaders. I mean, he, he called them some pretty harsh names. He called them pit of vipers. Um, he said, Who, you know, why are you coming to me for repentance? Um, he, he had really harsh words for the religious leaders, the, the hypocrites, the people who acted like they had it all together. They were self-righteous and judgmental. But there was only one time where Jesus actually became violent. The, the man who willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for all and experienced brutality the history, in the history of, of the world, some of the greatest brutality ever known to man, he laid his life down and didn't fight back. But the one time where he was fighting mad, where he actually went and made his own whip, was whenever he went into the temple and saw the temple being operated like a business. He walked in there and saw people exchanging money, people, people selling sacrifices and making money off of it. And he goes and creates his whip and rushes into that temple, cracking the whip and tossing over the tables, 
freeing animals and driving out the people. And what did he say? My father's house will be a house of prayer. That should stop and make us think. Honestly, it should scare us. Jesus said the Father's house is a house of prayer. There is no greater thing that we can do than pray as God's people. The second thing, the second thought, is one of the greatest observations of our day indicts most Christians today. And that observation is that there is little prayer in church or in the life of a Christian, except during times of crisis or out of obligation. Most praying that takes place today in churches and in the lives of Christians takes place due to crisis or out of obligation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray in those times. We, absolutely, we should go to the Lord. We, uh, Peter tells us to cast all our cares upon the Lord. During times of crisis, we should absolutely go to the Lord. We should thank him for keeping our family safe when they hit a deer. We should pray to the Lord whenever there's a health problem or when someone's sick or when uh, jobs are lost or there's, there's a crisis in our family or in our community. But but the question is, is that the extent of our prayer life, or does that amount for the majority of our prayer life? And then there's obligation. You know, in in our family, we are trying to teach our kids, um, you know, you're thankful for the things that you get. So one of the ways that we do that is we thank the Lord for our food. We thank the Lord for the house that we live in. We thank the Lord for the car that we have. And it's easy for those prayers at bedtime or at meals or even even before we, we take an offering or in a worship service setting, it's easy for those things, those prayers, excuse me, to become prayers out of obligation. And we must guard against that. So my question to you is, The praying, as you look at your life, the praying that takes place in your life, does it occur due to crisis and obligation? Or is it more heartfelt? To be honest with you, when I looked at my life and asked myself that question, I was disappointed. Yeah, there are times that other, I pray other times, but, but I was ashamed when I looked at myself of how many days go by in my life where there really isn't any other times of prayer except prayer out of obligation or prayer due to crisis. I was convicted on that point. The third, third thought this morning to begin the series is, comes from Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us to pray. Now, I personally don't find that surprising that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. I mean, who doesn't want to know how to pray better? And Jesus was standing right there, so they asked him. Actually, the context is they had just heard Jesus praying. And so upon hearing Jesus pray, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. 
So while I don't find it surprising that they asked him to pray, I do find two things surprising, two observations surprising about them asking Jesus to pray. The first thing is that this is the only time we have recorded in Scripture where the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them anything. The disciples did not ask Jesus how to perform miracles. The disciples didn't ask Jesus how to heal the blind or heal the lame or um, how, to, how to heal people with diseases or even how to cast out demons. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples two by two, he told them what to do. He'd give sight to the blind, heal the lame, preach the gospel, and they didn't stop and say, well, how do we do that? They just went and did it. And in fact, whenever they couldn't cast out a demon, the disciples didn't say, hey, Jesus, can you teach us how to cast out this demon? They said, why can't we cast out this demon? They'd done it before. What was special about this one? But here, they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. I find that very curious. There's something very special about prayer. There's intrinsic value in praying and praying well. See, one of the things that I was both challenged with and encouraged by as I studied this is that on the one hand, we serve a God who listens to weak, pitiful prayers. Praise God. But just because we serve a God who listens to weak and pitiful prayers, that doesn't mean we want to stay weak and pitiful prayers. We want to grow in our praying. We want to honor God in the kind of prayers that we ask him. We want to become strong prayers, not because God answers prayers because of the value of the one praying, but because we want to be more in line with the way that honors God through our prayers. Because praying isn't about rubbing the bottle right to get the genie to come out. Praying is about being in line with the Father. It's about a relationship. Just like every relationship is based upon excuse me. Just like every relationship is based upon communication, prayer life is the life and breath of our relationship with the Lord. The other thing I find surprising about the fact that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray is the way Jesus responds, or or rather, how he doesn't respond. See, when Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father, Jesus responded with, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's it's not an illogical conclusion to assume that Jesus might have responded with, well, You talk to the Father just like you talk to me. But Jesus doesn't respond that way. And the fact that Jesus doesn't respond that way really puts some pressure on most of our current definitions and understandings of prayer. It would seem that we need to have a new or more robust understanding of prayer a new definition of what prayer is and how it works. And so I hope to to fully answer those questions in the upcoming weeks. But for the time remaining this morning, 
we're going to put together kind of a, a working definition of prayer. And this isn't an, an easy task, and, and it's easy to nitpick and, and, and get really detailed. Um, many people have made their own suggestions, and some are good, some are not so good. But the main problem with defining prayer is that the definition must be simple, but it can't be overly simplistic. For instance, to say that prayer is just talking to God might be a, a good definition for, for casual conversation or to begin explaining what prayer is to a non-believer. But for those of us who, who want to engage God through prayer and, and be a people of prayer, the definition of prayer is just talking to God is just oversimplified. Prayer is more than talking to God. If prayer is just talking to God, then why did Jesus respond to the, to the disciples with a, a, an actual prayer? When they said, Jesus, teach us to pray, he's like, oh, you got it. You're, just, you're talking to me. I'm God. There's something more to prayer than just talking to God. It's a good starting point. But if you stay there, I think you develop an immature prayer life. The definition talking to God can get you in the door, but it's not going to take you all the way home. So on the other hand, some people give great definitions of prayer, but fail to identify the key feature that makes prayer, prayer. Take, for instance, uh, Timothy Keller's definition. Uh, Timothy Keller is, is a pastor in, I believe it's New York City, and he, he wrote a really good volume on prayer. And I would highly, highly recommend it. It is excellent. Um, and his definition here that I'm going to say, I, I really do like. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to use it to deepen my own prayer life. But here it is. He says, prayer is both conversation. Excuse me. Prayer is both a conversation and an encounter with God. It's both awe and intimacy. Struggle and and reality. You, you can hear the depth in that definition. But my question is, what makes prayer those things? How do you encounter God through prayer? For prayer to be prayer, you cannot disconnect prayer from faith. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And anyone who wants to draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So for us to get down, draw a line in the sand, marking out what prayer is, I think we need to turn to the first instance of prayer recorded in Scripture. Now, if prayer is just talking to God, then the first recorded prayer in the Bible is Adam making excuses for his own sin and blaming his wife. Which, you know, given uh, man's current condition, wouldn't be a surprise. But I believe the first instance of prayer being recorded is found in Genesis chapter 4. And you, you can turn there if you wish. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. This is an easy passage to skip over. Because it comes right in between two genealogies in, in the Bible. In Genesis uh, the writer of Genesis goes through the genealogy of Cain, 
and then he gives about two verses, and then he gives a genealogy of Seth. And verse 26 is what has been called, um, I guess, a load-bearing verse, meaning this verse hangs, upon this verse hangs almost the entire story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Cain, or excuse me, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Out of context, it may be hard to see where the, what the point is. But before I go on to explain the passage in context, let us explore the key phrase for just a minute. To call upon the name of the Lord does not mean just to use God's name. Rather, it means in the Bible, when the Bible says to call upon the name of the Lord, They are appealing to God's nature, to his very person. To call upon the name of the Lord is to appeal to God's character. It's to call upon God for help. So with that said, let's move on to the context of this passage. Just before this passage is written, like I said, uh, these these two verses are sandwiched in between Cain's genealogy and Seth's genealogy. And Cain is notorious as the first murderer. He murdered his brother Abel. And so the genealogy of Cain ends in chapter 4 with Lamech. And Lamech brags about being worse than his great-great-great-grandfather Cain. Cain murdered one time And God said that uh, he will be, um, he will be revenged sevenfold. But listen to what Lamech says. He has two wives. He's the first man in scripture, I believe, to uh, be noted to have two wives. In verse 23, we read this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zala, or excuse me, Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He was bragging about his murders. He was bragging about his violence. So Cain, the father of, of this line, of this patriarch, was a murderer. And by the time we get to Lamech, violence was so strong in the family that the great-great-great-grandson of Cain was bragging about killing a man just for wounding him. So after this, we pick up in verse 25, and the story turns back to Adam and Eve. And then to Seth, the child that God gave Eve to replace Abel. And as the story turns back to the main family, we ought to recall what else happened, what else took place. If we remember correctly, after Adam and Eve's removal from the Garden of Eden, 
after they sinned and ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, after they believed the lie of the serpent, God made them a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that a child from woman would come and destroy the evil serpent, Satan. The promised child was obviously not the murderer Cain. So there needed to be another. Then when it turned out that it wasn't Seth, Seth fathered Enosh. Now as the time progressed to get from Seth to Enosh, remember what was happening in the other family line. They were growing more and more violent. Lamesh ends up bragging about his, his violence. So the, by, by the time Enosh comes along, the people begin to what? They begin to call upon the name of the Lord. They're getting desperate. They're seeing the corruption, that, the corrupting effect that sin has. And what is it that they're calling upon God to do? They're calling upon God to come through on his promise. Send the one who will crush the serpent and put things back together again. So what have we learned from that? What does that mean? What definition ought we use for prayer based on this first instance of people calling out upon the name of the Lord? Well, I would say this. At the heart of prayer is a calling upon the name of the Lord. Prayer is calling upon God to come through on his promises. Let me repeat that. Prayer is calling upon God to come through on his promises. Now this might seem like a restricting definition. It doesn't seem broad enough. I mean, surely prayer is more than that, right? Well, when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises that we have through Jesus, this definition is like the opening of a floodgate. This does include thanksgiving. It includes praise, supplications, and requests. When we go to God in all of these ways, we're coming to him on the basis of what God has done for us. We're coming to him on the basis of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins allows us to come before God, his very presence, and pray directly to him. God is there for us to go to. The doors are wide open because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. So when we are calling out upon God to do something, there is a responsibility upon us to know what his promises are in Scripture. There's, there's a burden upon God's people to know God well enough that when we are talking to him, we know what it is he wants. We know what it is he's promised us. And so when we pray, 
calling out upon God to come through on his promises, that prayer is an act of faith. Praying is a way of demonstrating our faith to God, and it's a way of rejoicing in his promises. And that is why prayer pleases God. God's made a promise. You know, sometimes in my household with my four-year-old, she'll ask me to do something. I'll say, yeah, wait, wait a few minutes. Let me finish what I'm doing here, and then we'll do that. It's not five seconds later she's asking me to do it again. For me, excuse me, for me, as a human, as a man who gets frustrated and grows impatient, that gets irritating. But God is a God of long-suffering. God is a God who rejoices to know that his children are looking to him, waiting for him to move, waiting for him to act, and waiting in anticipation. God, when are you going to do this? I'm waiting. Come on, please, Lord, let's, let's go. Let's do this. And sometimes the response none of his children want to hear, he says, I know. Wait. That, that's hard. And it's because God is not only accomplishing his grand plan, God is also developing us as his children to be more like Christ. So church, let us view prayer as a calling upon the name of the Lord. Let our prayers be so oriented around Scripture, around God's self-revelation, that we are calling upon Him to come through on His promises that He's made to us that are ours in Christ. So let me end this morning with a question. Will you commit to pray with me every day for the future of this church? Will you pray with me every day for God's clear direction for us? As we enter into this new year, what does the Lord want to do with this church? What is the vision he wants to give us? What is the vision he has for us? And how do we get on board with that? We will never know unless we pray. How does God want to use First Baptist Church of Glasgow to reach the community of Glasgow for his glory? Will you commit to pray with me daily that God would use this church to shine his glory deep into the heart of Glasgow? Let's pray. Dear Father, that, that is my prayer. Lord, we know that Christ came to build a church. Lord, so we believe that you want to build your church here in Glasgow, Missouri. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us your mission for this church, how to accomplish that mission, and give us the endurance the will, the motivation to shine for you and accomplish your mission here. Lord, we ask that you would do this, that you would get the glory, 
that we would shine your light among them. Amen.